Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 116 The Year One Engine. Now, normally when we cover game engines on this show, we cover the very basics of the system without getting into a lot of detail. That tends to be because well, I can't get my hands on a copy of the system easily. This week is going to be different, and that's because the Year One engine is available for free, so I had a full PDF of the system itself to utilize for this program. And as we go along, I'll make sure you know where you can get it if you're so inclined. Let's start with the creators of this system, and that would be a little Swedish company known as Freya Ligan, though English-speaking players would know them as Free League Publishing. Tomas Harenstam is the credited creator, and the copyright is 2023. Now, there's not a ton of background information concerning the creation of this new system, but what I could find out is this. Free League had been working on a new game engine for several years in order to set their various titles apart from the other games out on the market. The Year One engine is the result of that creative process. Now, before we break down the system, I also wanted to note that the Year Zero system operates under what Free League calls a free tabletop license. Think of it as an OGL, because that's basically what it is. Free League reported in early January of this year, when this was announced, that they'd been intending to do this even before the whole Wizards of the Coast OGL thing, but that little situation caused them to drop it just a little bit earlier. Regardless of the reason why it was released in January, it was released, and now game creators have another system they can use as the framework to build their games on. That being said, Free League has been using it on all of their games for the past couple of years, a couple of which we've covered over the past few months of the show. A few of the other games Year Zero is the engine for are Mutant Year Zero, Tales from the Lamp, Forbidden Lands, Alien, Vaisen, Blade Runner, and the forthcoming Walking Dead game. And if I may say so myself, that's, uh, that's a pretty hefty lineup. And finally, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this system, I wanted to let you know that you can get a PDF of it, along with the associated FTL, on the Free League Publishing website, freeleaguepublishing.com. So let's break down this system and see what makes her purr, shall we? It's a 46-page document, which is, to my knowledge, a rather standard size for a game engine release, and they make it what I'd call their mission statements on the first page and a half. They state that the game is accessible, and by that they mean that the system is intended to be easy to learn, making it easier to teach new players how to play it. They also consider it to be fast and decisive, and by that they mean there's no wasted actions. Part of that comes from only making die rolls that are necessary to further the plot or the action. They do note that the stakes in games using the Year Zero system can be high, so making the right decisions can be critical. They talk about risks and rewards, and those are fairly self-explanatory. It's also noted that the Year One engine is both player-centric and story-driven, which means that the players are always the center of the action, but that action is as much about telling a good story as it is about pillage, 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 loot, loot, loot. Finally, they note that it's adaptable to the various play styles of players, 
but I think that might take a little more stress testing to either confirm or deny. Enough of the theory then, let's get cracking on those nuts and bolts. I mentioned dice a few minutes ago, and it needs to be noted that the Year One engine has two different ways to handle using dice in the game, the dice pool version and the step dice version. Typically, the designers of a particular game will lock in the version that they want used, but there are and will be situations in which the individual GM can make that call. And while I'd usually just lay out how the two versions work right here, the document doesn't handle it that way. Instead, they break down the versions as they get into skills and attributes, yada, yada, yada. So I'm going to do the same, mostly because trying to summarize it all right here gave me a headache when I was writing it. So yeah, no, I hope that's just not a sign of things to come. <laughs> Fingers crossed. The version being used also determines the die types you need. If you're using the dice pool, you only need D6s, though it's recommended you have 10 to 15 of them since the pools can get quite large. For most of us, that's not going to be a problem. The only problem for me is which 15 six-sided dice do I want to put in the bag? I mean, if you've seen the YouTube video where I show off my dice storage, you understand where I'm coming from. For the step dice version, it does get a little more varied. You're going to need D8s, D10s, D12s. It's also noted that some games will have rules variations in them that require dice in different colors, but I really wouldn't worry about that right now. One more thing I wanted to hit on concerning dice. Thomas Harenstam notes in a sidebar in this section that it's entirely possible in the step dice version to roll things like D3, D66, and D100. I think we all know what rolling a D3 means, but for the less experienced gamers, that means you roll 1D6. 1 and 2 are a 1, 3 and 4 are a 2, 5 and 6 are a 3. D66 just means you roll 2D6 and designate which one is in the 10 spot and which one is in the 1 spot before you roll. D100 is, as we've discussed more than once, rolling 2D10 the same way as we would for D66 or rolling a percentile die in a D10. It's also noted that using this system, you could roll D666 or D6666 if you were so inclined, though I'm a bit superstitious, so D666 isn't going to be used in my games anytime soon. The document also references a custom card deck, and we'll elaborate on that a little later on. Finally, in this first section, we get the time measurements for the system. They have what's called a round, which is used for combat and runs from 5 to 10 seconds. There's the stretch, which is used for things like exploration and runs from 5 to 10 minutes. And the shift, which is used for things like travel and runs from 5 to 10 hours. Again, I think some of this gets explained a little deeper as we go along. By the way, did I mention I'm pretty much just covering this document in the order it was written? I'm doing that so we give you the almost full tour, and that means if you're interested in it, you know enough to grab the document and run with it, and if you're not interested, well, at least you were informed, and I hope you were entertained. There's a short section discussing what they call playing safely, and that's become a standard in most tabletop role-playing games these days. What it means is that before play starts, the GM and the players should discuss what topics or types of situations would be considered inappropriate for gameplay. Now, I know there are some old school folks that are going to scoff at that and say that these kids need to toughen up, as it were, but I completely understand the concept. I mean, I've made the mistake of having content in my game that isn't appropriate for younger gamers while I've had younger gamers playing at my table. 
I'm also a proponent of respecting the individual's mental health. So if there's a topic or a situation that would make them uncomfortable, I agree we shouldn't use that type of material in the game. Look, I realize I'm going to go about four times longer than this section is with my explanation, but I think there's something we need to consider here, and I think it helps me make my point. For us old schoolers in the crowd, think back to some of the illustrations from D&D and other fantasy games and books back in the late 70s and 80s. What did we see a lot of? Scantily clad women with large breasts, basically. And for the horny guys that were playing the game, that was perfectly okay. But think about how your daughter, specifically, would feel if that's how you saw women in your game today. I mean... I get it, the times have changed and it's a societal norm that we don't do that anymore. But I do know a few folks with the attitude that they're going to do what they want and everyone else can deal with it. Short story long, if it makes your players uncomfortable to play it, don't do it. Or find another group that feels the same way you do. And with that, I get off the soapbox. Let's get back to breaking the system down. Chapter two is devoted to character creation. And something that made me chuckle a bit is that one of the very first things they say in this section is that they don't include a character sheet because every game that uses this system will have their own sheet. I caught myself because I almost audibly said no shit when I read that, but maybe I thought that, I don't know. Anyway, one of the components of creating a character is choosing an archetype, and the SRD leaves that open to interpretation for the creators of the games running the system. However, what they don't leave the chance are the attributes. They've only got four, strength, agility, wits, and empathy, and those work exactly as you think they do, so there's really no need to elaborate any further. Coming up with those attributes is an interesting process, though, as it depends upon the dice system you're using. If you're going with the dice pool version, you get 14 points to distribute among the scores, and you have to put at least two in each, but no more than five in any single one. That being said, there are a few games that use the system that allow only your key attribute to be a five, with the other three being capped at four. And if you do the math here, 14 points is more than enough, which is also why there's the ability for a game creator to lower that number a bit if need be. Anyway, as we've noted, the scores are rated 1 to 5, with 1 being called feeble and 5 being extraordinary. Now, if you're going to go with the step dice system, those are rated A to D, with A being best and D being worst. And much like in Deadlands Classic, among other games, the level of your attribute determines the die type you use, with A's getting a D12, B's getting a D10, and so on. During the build phase, you get three increases to use, which means you can increase die types three times, and you can do those however you want. The base for each attribute is C, so you've got a decent starting place. You can also pick up another increase by decreasing an attribute to D. Next up are Health and Resolve. These determine how much damage and stress, respectively, you can take before you're basically broken down and out of action. In the dice pool system, health equals the average of the strength and agility scores, rounding up and adding one to that total. Resolve is the average of wits and empathy, rounding up and adding one to that score. In the step dice system, health equals the sum of the die size for strength and agility divided by four, rounded up. Resolve works the same way, only with wits and empathy. Now, there are possible variations on this based on the particular game, 
but we're going to leave those alone since we're focusing on the overall system. Next up is figuring out your skills. There are 12 basic skills, and I'll detail those more momentarily. And again, how you figure those depends on the dice system you're using. For the dice pool system, we again rate them on a scale of 1 to 5, with 5 being best. There are no points in any of the skills when you start, and you typically get 10 points to use in choosing your skills. The step dice system works a bit differently, though it has the same A to D system that attributes do. In this system, you'd choose a B skill level, two C levels, and three D levels. And the B is theoretically supposed to be one that's named in your archetype. So if you're using that system, you don't start with an A level skill. As we move along the build process, there are specialties, personality traits, gear, and encumbrance, but I'm gonna leave those for you to read about on your own. What I wanted to hit on next is the consumable section because there's a few interesting things about it that I think warrant mentioning. For the most part, consumables work the same way as they do in every other system. But the Year Zero engine has something called a supply roll that can also be used, and it's used in place of tracking each item used individually. Basically, it works like this. Each player has known what's known as a supply rating for each of the consumables they have. So instead of tracking them individually, the GM can roll at regular intervals, which can become shorter in between if the group's been using a lot of consumables, a number of D6s equal to the current supply rating with a maximum of six dice. For every die that rolls a one, the consumable in question, like bullets for example, sees its supply rating reduced by one until it reaches zero. Once that happens, that consumable has been used up. It also has a method for tracking consumables exchanged between players as the player giving the item reduces their supply rating in that category by however many steps they want based on how much they want to give and the recipient increases their supply rating in that item by the same amount. Like I said, a different way to do it and if I have to be honest, one that I think simplifies the game just a bit, but maybe that's just me. Experience points are a standard pretty much in role-playing games, and they appear here as well. There are a number of questions to be answered when it comes to awarding experience, and they're pretty much the same questions you'd think they'd be, so I'm not going to list them out here. One thing I do want to note is that the GM is the sole arbiter of how many XPs to give each character, and they don't have to be equal for each character. Though, let's be honest here, unless you've got somebody who doesn't do jack in your party, you're probably awarding equal XP to all. XP can be spent to increase skill levels and specialties, and the idea is that to gain a skill at level 1 or D, depending on the system, you have to spend 5 points. To move up from 1 to 2 or D to C, it costs 10 points, and so on, and so on. Specialties can be purchased for 10 XP, but there's a caveat. You have to have a teacher, and that can be one of the characters in your group or an NPC. They instruct you for one shift, then the teacher makes a persuasion roll. If they succeed, you get the specialty. If they fail, you don't, but you get the XP back and you can try again in another shift. Okay, so now that we've got creation and a basic understanding of the attributes and skills out of the way, let's start breaking down the meat of the system and we'll start with the skills and specialties. I mentioned that there are 12 base skills in the system, and I call them base skills because the various games built on the system can and do add skills of their own that are appropriate to the genre of the game. The core skills are force, melee, stamina, marksmanship, mobility, stealth, 
crafting, observation, survival, healing, insight, and persuasion. And yes, there are three for each of the four attributes, and I went in order by attribute here. The skills are elaborated on in decent detail, but I think we all get what they do, at least in the basic meaning, so I'll forego the deeper explanation and get to roles and other items we need to tick off this list. As you've probably come to expect by this point, rolling to use a skill depends on the dice system you're using, so let's look at both of them. With the dice pool, you use the number of d6s equal to the skill level plus the current score in the attribute linked to that skill. Now, that number can be adjusted, particularly if you've got some helpful gear. Success requires one six. That's it. If you happen to roll more, you get a number of successes equal to the number of successes you've rolled, and I'll explain what happens then in a moment. In the dice step method, you use two dice, one for the skill level and one for the attribute linked to that skill. Again, you need one six to have a success, but you don't get two successes for two sixes, or at least that's how I read it. However, if you're rolling a D10 or a D12 and happen to roll a 10, you can get two successes. So there's that anyway. And as in the die pool version, the modifiers can be increased or decreased and helpful gear is included. One thing to note, if you don't have the skill needed for the task, you can still roll. You'll just be rolling the die for the attribute connected to that skill. That's pretty much the same as we've seen in pretty much every other system that does this. So what does happen if you get multiple successes? It's kind of up to the GM to determine what, but you should be getting some sort of bonus effect out of it, like bonus damage in combat or really impressing that royal you're trying to impress. Obviously, the possibilities are endless, so let's just leave it with that. Now, where we have successes, there's also the chance of failure. I mean, that's how the dice sometimes roll. So what is considered a failure and what happens next? If you roll no sixes, something goes wrong. That's the failure. It's up to you and the GM to decide exactly what that looks like, but the rules specifically state that it shouldn't stop the story completely. So whatever you do, make sure there's still a way for things to move forward. But you don't necessarily have to accept the failure. You do have another option. This would be what they call pushing the roll. I should note for the record that you can do this even when you succeed, as it would allow for more successes, but you're probably going to be using this when you really need that success. The idea behind this is that by pushing the roll, you're giving whatever skill you're using everything you've got in the tank, which is going to push you to your physical and or mental limits. What it allows you to do is re-roll any dice that weren't ones. Ones are known as banes, and you cannot re-roll those. The caveat to this is that you're stuck with the result after a re-roll, as a re-roll freezes the dice as they are. There are penalties to doing this, of course, and they vary from taking actual health damage, damage to an attribute, a change in your physical condition, like if you were already fatigued or something, it'd get worse, and others. Again, these are explained in great detail in the book, so I'll leave it for you to check out. I know I keep seeing book, but it's more like a pamphlet because it's a PDF. Anyway, I need to reiterate something here. For any given skill check, a single player only gets one chance to succeed. If they don't succeed on the initial roll, they can try the push. If they still fail, they're done. It's a failure for them. So the group's either stuck with the failure or somebody else is going to have to try. 
I do like that particular rule since it prevents the same player from trying multiple times to succeed at a task they just can't seem to get. There are a lot more rules and options concerning die rolls, but I wanted to get to the big ones. So let's move on and discuss specialties, especially since I didn't really elaborate on them earlier. There are 23 specialties listed in the document, and it's noted that specific games may add more and or subtract a few as need be. They range from things like Quick Draw and Tough, which we've seen before in other systems, to Pack Mule, which increases the carry limit by two, and Merciless, which allows for basically a coup de gras without the usually required empathy roll. Again, I could list all of these out, but I think I'm riding the border of what Free League Publishing is going to let me get away with on this show, and the last thing I need is a pissed off game company hunting me down. Though it could be interesting, but... Then again, if Wizards of the Coast hasn't sent Pinkerton detectives or federal marshals after me by this point, I'm probably okay. What? Too soon? The next two chapters cover the two pieces I think the majority of gamers are most interested in. Combat and magic. Let's start with combat. Combat is conducted typically in zones and noted out on maps so ranges can be used. However, if you are like my group, we tend to not use the maps and we play things out using the theater of the mind concept. That means you still need to keep things like range and lighting in mind, but some of the other concept might be things you just choose to ignore since it might be more work than it's worth. Like any good role-playing game, we can't start combat until we've got the initiative order worked out. This is where that deck of cards comes in handy. Before the session, pull out 10 cards, the 2 through 10 and the ace of any suit. Those are the cards you're going to use for initiative, and the ace counts as a 1. When the initiative is needed, each player involved in the combat draws a card, and the GM pulls one for each NPC involved. Then the combat goes in order from 1 to 10. After that, collect the cards, shuffle, and continue if you need to. There is the possibility for a surprise attack under these rules, but it's totally up to the GM to decide if the attack would truly be a surprise or not, and it's typically limited to one player. That player gets to decide when they go, then everybody else draws cards. Exchanging initiative order is also allowed, but you have to announce it on your turn, and you have to do it before you do anything else. You can either do it to a PC or to an NPC, and the person you want to exchange with has the option to decline, in which case you're just what we call shit out of luck. And once you've exchanged, by the way, you cannot do it again in the same round. Actions are up next, and there's really only two types of actions. Slow actions like crawling and reloading, and fast actions like running and aiming. There are more actions, and they're listed out on the pages of the PDF, but again, I'm covering a lot of stuff here, and I've still got more I want to do. I should note that free actions, which we're used to from a number of other games, are limited here to basically either saying a few words or dropping to the ground. Otherwise, it falls into one of the other two categories. There are multiple types of movement along with various conditions that alter them, like crawling and chases, and there are whole charts in here that detail what you need to do and what you need to roll to deal with them, so again, check out the document for yourself. Since we're getting into combat, we need to note that there are specific rules in here for close combat, or what most of us would call melee, and ranged combat. 
Again, there are charts that deal with various modifiers to be added to the rolls, but they're pretty simple ones to figure out. So the action should keep rolling along, unless, of course, you've got that rules lawyer arguing about the range they're firing from. The rolls for combat depend on whether it's melee or ranged, with strength being the attribute for melee and agility for ranged. You'd add the marksmanship skill to ranged and the melee skill for that close quarters style of combat. The weapon you use can also help you with your rolls, and that depends on the weapon itself, and they've got a chart to help you with that as well. Critical hits are also possible in this system, though there's what they call a critical threshold, and damage must be equal to or greater than that threshold. And again, they've got a chart for that. Before I move on, I know I've said a lot about charts. There are quite a few of them for this system, but I'd like to add that I find them to be very helpful, well-organized, and well-thought-out. So unlike other systems, like Shadowrun, that can kill a GM with the charts, I really don't see that being the situation that happens here. Anyway, moving on. There's expanded notes on damage, things like cover and conditions, and a full explanation of how recovery from injuries work. Spoiler alert, it's either going to take a medical assistance or a shitload of rest, just so we're clear. And giving credit to our designer here, he's tried to cover as many possibilities for combat as possible, with notes on things like darkness, explosion, falling, poison, drowning. I mean, I'm sure my group could find a way to break this, but I appreciate his attention to detail, especially since he's only used 46 pages to do everything. Mounts, vehicles, and chases involving them get love here as well, and there are charts, again, that get into detailing damage for vehicles as well as the types of vehicles and mounts. Again, the individual games will add things to these lists, but for a system base, these have been very well thought out. It did just occur to me I'm starting to short some of my details as I'm moving along here, and a lot of that is because I keep realizing how much more book I have to go through and how far along I am in the show. But since the document is free, it should be real easy to encourage you to download it for yourself and just see what all I've left out. But let's talk magic. In some ways, magic in this system works a lot like we've seen in dozens of systems before. But the differences make it a bit more challenging. And I admit I like the possibilities here. Magic is described in the text as wild and unreliable. And that certainly makes it different from games like D&D. Another way it's different is that it's specifically sorted into seven different disciplines. Awareness, healing, and shape-shifting, which are considered to be druidic, and blood magic, death magic, elementalism, and symbolism, which are considered sorcery. Now, to actually cast spells, you need to understand that each discipline is linked to a specialty. So this is where those come back into play. If you don't have the specialty, you can't cast the spells. Spells are also ranked one to three, so you can only cast spells that are equal to your rank in that specific discipline. You can gain levels, but much like with skills, that requires a master with a higher rank than yours, as well as probably needing a bunch of cash or willingness to perform a few favors. Just saying. Now, when casting a spell, you never fail. In fact, casting the spell uses what are known as willpower points, which can be gained by pushing rolls normally. So just using the points allows you to cast the spell at the power level equal to the number of points you spend. That being said, you also roll dice equal to the number of willpower points you spend, 
For each success you get, the power level of the spell increases by one, which is called overcharging the spell. However, for each one you roll, you have a magic mishap, and they've got a chart for that. There are also ways to cast your spells at lower levels, meaning you reduce the number of dice you roll, and therefore the number of chances to roll a one. The document gives descriptions of all of the spells for the game, at least all the base spells, and I consider them to be similar to a lot of the spells we've seen in other games, so check out the document if you're curious. The last chapter of the document covers things like travel, but also has things like camp mishaps on it. Like I said, our designer was trying to cover all of his bases. I don't necessarily know if this chapter was necessary, but I'd rather have it and never use it than to decide I could have used it and it not be there. Now, throughout the document, we are continually reminded that specific games will add to these rules as they see fit to make their game work. And if you're designing a game built on this system, it's anticipated you're going to do the same. So if you're interested in checking out the Year Zero engine, I'd suggest again that you head over to the Free League Publishing website at freeleaguepublishing.com. And with that, we've come to the end of today's show. Next week, well, I haven't nailed down which of the three topics that I've been researching for the past few weeks. So you know what? I'm going to nail one down over the next seven days and I'll have it for you next week. Friday. In the meantime, check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This week, we kick off Act 3 by picking up the cliffhanger we used in the second show for last week. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. You can follow us all over social media and all our sites are listed in the information box for this episode or you can check out our website badgmproductions.net next week i'll be bringing you another deep dive on another interesting topic i'm just not sure what that's going to be yet whatever it is we're going to get to it next week until then i'm wayne davis in your role-playing history